0: Our gospel lesson this morning comes from the twenty-first chapter of the gospel according to Luke, verses twenty-five through thirty-six. Hear now this word from the Lord. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth distress among nations confused by the roaring of the sea and waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Then Jesus told them a parable— Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away." Be on guard so that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life, and that that day does not catch you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all who live on the face of the whole earth. Be alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that take place and to stand before the Son of Man." This too is the word of God for the people of God. To God. I am very proud to say that my parents strictly abide by the no Christmas decorations before Thanksgiving rule. I don't know that it was ever explicitly said in our house growing up, but mom just never sent dad down to the garage to pull out the de- decorations until the fourth Friday of November. And truly, no judgment for the most part, if y'all have had Christmas lights and nativity scenes out for a few weeks. I get it. One of my favorite decorations at my parents' home are the colored light bulbs that they put um, in the porch light and in the lamppost. They put red at the porch and green in the lamppost. Now, my parents, they live sort of out in the country, and when you come around the last bend on their street, you really can only see the light in the lamppost. So when it's the Christmas season, you come around the bend and you see that green light, and it's how you know that you're home. At some point when I was in college or seminary, coming home for the holidays, I made a pretentious joke about the light, uh, the green one, being like the light at the end of Daisy's dock in The Great Gatsby, the one that Gatsby sort of stares at longingly as though it called to him. And so my sweet father, he kept that green bulb in the lamppost. The next time I came home, I rounded the bend, and even though it was well past Christmas at that point, there was that green light calling me home and letting me know that I had made it back. And he left it there for a long, long time so that every time I came back, I would see it and know that I was home. I don't really need signs, that sign in particular, to know that I've made it home or to know that it's Christmas, but signs are helpful. They serve as reminders, they keep us alert, they can be comforting. We have a multitude of signs letting us know that Christmas is rapidly approaching, you know, children laughing, people passing, meeting smile after smile, well, we assume that everyone is smiling under their masks. The discount Halloween candy has been replaced by candy canes. Pumpkin spice is replaced by peppermint. Your beloved church staff is starting to look a little little more harried than usual. These are all signs of the impending celebration of Christ's birth. And now that we've officially entered Advent, that is what is on our horizon. And our gospel text offers us some very particular signs as we jump into this season. And the signs we find in Luke are slightly more violent. They are way less holly jolly, to be sure. We have signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. We have surging seas. We've got shaken planets and fainting and foreboding. No city sidewalks dressed in holiday style here. Jesus tells of much more ominous signs. Jesus goes on to talk about the coming of the Son of Man, heaven, and earth passing away. He says something about a fig tree and calls his hearers to stay alert so they aren't caught in a trap. It's pretty festive, right? This is like genuinely apocalyptic language. It's, It's almost like Jesus is telling his listeners to pay attention for the end of the world. And one of the major questions this text asks us is, how are we to be on guard? What does it mean to be alert in the face of these signs? We often get this kind of alertness and awareness language on the first Sunday of Advent. Because Advent is all about preparation, this makes sense, right? Be alert for something new, something exciting, something as of yet unseen, all of that is about to happen. Eyes up, don't miss what's next. We love that about Advent. We love to watch and wait and prepare to celebrate the birth of Jesus. With this passage from Luke's gospel, however, it's a lot less make way for the sweet baby Jesus and a lot more panic because apocalypse. And for all of this end of the world language we get from Jesus, it isn't actually about an ending, but rather the passing of something old so that something new can sprout in its place, like the vine coming out of the stump on your bulletin cover. The word apocalypse in Greek simply means to uncover. So something old passes and something new is being uncovered. So we can't get rid of the scary language and we can't toss out the signs that seem rightly to invoke fear because I think that these signs are meant to wake us up to something, something more something bigger than fear. It's not just that we need to be alert to see the signs, but the signs themselves show us, give us something meaningful. The first readers of Luke's gospel, they were processing some pretty big traumas, and not just as individuals, but on the massive, catastrophic, historical level. Luke's gospel was written somewhere between 85 and 110 CE, and the temple in Jerusalem, the literal dwelling place of God, had been destroyed in 70. Their worlds had been turned upside down, and Luke, I think, is trying to help his readers process that trauma. Now, I'm not saying that we must make some positive meaning about the horrific things that happen in our lifetimes. but I do think that there are things to be learned from conflict and distress and failure. These signs, this pain is meant to wake the readers up to something. Verse 28 of our text says as much. Now when these things begin to take place, stand up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. When you see these signs, when you feel your world turning upside down, stand up, because transformation is coming. And that, I think, is what is at the heart of Advent. Hope, Advent hope, begins with a recognition that the world is currently not how it should be, or not how it was intended to be. We are not a Pollyannic people, ignorant of the deep trauma and wounds in our world, but rather people who see the world with eyes wide open in all its brokenness and still believe that this is not the end, but that the kingdom is coming. These signs, this awareness is an invitation. We can fall into despair, give in to the broken state of the world, or to hope that the current brokenness will not persevere. And good news, however slow, is coming. We learn something from these signs, and we can believe that something new is possible. I think about these first hearers of Luke's gospel being called upon to raise their heads in the light of the destruction of their temple, to find hope after a devastating loss, to see that, that as their sign that something new is coming. And I have to ask myself, what are our signs? Surely we have them too, don't we? There has been transformation and birth of new things, but the world is still broken. What are the things, what are the events that call us to alertness? We talked about this in Monday morning's Bible study, how for a time it felt like every generation had that big event that flipped our worlds upside down, that forced us to look at things differently. The Second World War, the Kennedy and King assassinations, The fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War, those events, if you lived through them, they changed the way you thought about the world. And we seem to have an increasing amount of these kinds of events, don't we? I remember thinking um, that the shootings at Columbine would be the defining story of my lifetime, the defining news event. Um, I thought that we'd never see that kind of violence in schools again, and I was wrong. Less than three years later, uh, three planes flew in to the towers of the World Trade Center while we watched. Um, And then we had the killings of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown, which were a little easier, perhaps, for us to keep our heads down because we didn't see it. Um, But then there was Eric Garner and Tamir Rice and George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, much harder signs to ignore. And then, of course, we have this seemingly unending pandemic what feels like a plague of biblical proportions. Does anyone else have their fill of upending events? Is anyone else just kind of tired of the world turning upside down? Um, Like the first readers of Luke's gospel, we have a choice to make. Do we keep our heads down and just try to sleep through it, or do we raise our heads higher? Verse 28, it offers a challenge and an invitation and a hope. Again, I'm not trying to say that we paint these events, these signs as a positive, as something that we have to twist into something good, but we do allow these events to wake us up, to refuse apathy or ignorance in favor of action. My friend Sarah recently shared this wisdom with some of our colleagues. She said, listen to your energy. It is an invitation. Anger is your teacher. Pay attention. The revealing and unveiling, which is what these signs are, these signs reveal the reality of the world. They ask us to pay attention. These things rightly make us uncomfortable, make us angry, break our hearts, and so we ought to listen to them. That, I think, is what it means to be on guard, what it means to be on guard so that our hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. When the broken places of the world are revealed to us, we do not faint from fear or fall back asleep. We see them and then step forward. This kind of eschatological, alert, on-guard thinking rejects a passive waiting. Raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near, Luke writes. That does not mean that we sit on our hands waiting for this too to pass. We do not twiddle our thumbs waiting for Jesus's second coming. We believe that this isn't the end and that something new can happen, and so we act. We believe in and hope in the coming reign of Christ, when the kingdom of God will be active and present and before us, and so we do something. Something new can happen as we, in the name of the kingdom, will it to happen. As professor and preaching folk hero Fred Craddock once said, The life of a disciple, after all, is not one of speculation or observation, but of our behavior and our relationships. I'm not sure that you guys need another pandemic-related story in these days, but I can't stop thinking about this one. In 1665, in the Derbyshire uh, village of Eam, a tailor's assistant was unwrapping a shipment of cloth from London to inspect Less than a week later, that assistant was dead, and the plague had come to Eme. Now, Eme was a really small village. There were only about 800 people that lived there, and they had a choice to make. In the larger cities, like London, when the plague came, the city just descended into chaos. The village's Anglican priests reached out to the exiled Puritan minister who lived on the outskirts of the village. Um, they should not have been friends. But together, they came up with a plan, a plan to hopefully slow the spread of sickness in their village, but ultimately to stop the sickness from going any further north to other villages. They proposed quarantining the whole village, just locking it down until the plague passed. It was a radical idea, and it almost assuredly made folks pretty unhappy, and yet Every single person in that village agreed. They put markers around the outside of the village. They put water troughs filled with vinegar so they could disinfect things. Um, They made a list of rules and guidelines, and people followed them, and it was terrible and hard. One of the rules was that the dead had to be buried immediately by someone in their own household. And one woman in Eme lost her husband and all six of her children to the sickness and people in the neighboring village said they could see her on the hillside digging each grave by hand, but they were unable to go and help her. When the last case of the plague seems to have vanished, the remaining villagers, those that had survived, brought all of their belongings, their books, their furniture, their clothes, except for what they wore on their backs. They brought it all to the village square and burnt it, burnt every piece of it, thus stopping the possibility of contamination and spread for good. The people of Eam, those two rival ministers, they read the sign. They saw this terrible and broken thing in the world and they raised their heads. This village saw a much smaller percentage of death than many other places and they did, in fact, stop the spread. I cannot suggest that this was a positive thing that happened in the village, it was not. I cannot wrap a silver lining around it and call it good because it wasn't. It was horrible. The survivors of EAM left that quarantine broken. But what I can say is that they chose to stay alert. They chose the lives of others. They chose selflessness in the face of pain. And in the face of fear, they chose hope that something new could and would come from all of it. Studies have been done on Eem in the last decades, particularly in the last few years, and scientists have found something interesting. Direct descendants of EAM's plague survivors show this genetic mutation that makes them ge- genetically predisposed to fight off that illness. I'm not a scientist, not in the least, um, and I'm sure there is something a lot more complex about this, but it is as though the people of Eem were born for the mission that they assigned themselves. They were born to act. Now, it's important to remember that those people had no idea that their genetic codes were different or special. All they knew was that victory over the plague depended on one thing, their courage, their courage to act. We live into the hope of advent, of the apocalypse, of the coming kingdom by acting. We do not know when we will see the world put to rights when the old will pass away and something new will spring forth to drive out the broken places. But we will see signs day by day as we try, as we march forward. Jurgen Moltmann, who was a reformed theologian and is not my favorite contestant on Bake Off this year, once wrote, I try to present the Christian hope no longer as such an opium of the beyond, but rather as the divine power that makes us alive in this world. Our hope is not just about what waits for us on the other side, but rather is tied to what we do, how we live into the divine power here and now. This Advent, as you make your preparations to celebrate the arrival of Jesus, may you keep your eyes open. May you see the harsh and difficult signs and not allow apathy or dismay to stop you from raising your head. May you listen to the invitation given to you by your anger and your concern and your energy. May you see signs of beauty and newness in green lit lampposts and smiling faces under masks. May you know that transformation is possible. May you put your faith in people, in the ability of individuals, including yourselves, to do big good in the world. May you trust in the hope of the kingdom of God and in the radical love of Jesus Christ. Amen.